Let's do it. This is the Movie Hall of Fame class of Clint Eastwood for Thursday, June 4th, 2020. Adam Hall's across the table from me. Yeah. Sweating profusely. I'm not sweating profusely. This dude walked in. It's June 3rd. We're recording this. Yeah. And it's New England. It's a New England summer. Yeah. So it's not exactly like hot. Homeboy walks in here with jeans and a cardigan. Yeah. Yeah. With Timberlands on. I'm wearing my Timberlands, so I'm an extra uh, five feet taller. <laughs> it's great. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're buffing the stats in terms of height. I know. And, dude, like, what are you doing? It's I a was, summer's evening. I don't know. I woke up and I was like, yeah, I, I, I just instinctively know it's, it's cardigan time. <laughs> yeah, apparently you don't. Apparently you have a bad feel for this because, again, like... I don't feel like I'm Your sweating. armpits have gotten flooded. <laughs> They're drowning. I'm like Nixon over here. Yeah, let's... Like chicken ass. No, uh... <laughs> You're like Albert Brooks from Broadcast News over here. <laughs> it's awful. This isn't... I, I don't know. I just... I, I haven't felt uncomfortable all day. It's been pretty fine. Your body disagrees, man. Huh, dude, my body's been disagreeing with me my <laughs> entire life. Okay, I don't ain't, listen. I don't listen. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> I don't listen to my body. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, how are you? Other than hot, good. I, oh, I'm, I'm fine. Ooh, I'm hot. You know I'm hot, Nico. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> are you well? I'm well. You're hanging in? Yeah, I've seen so many movies. Have you? I've watched so many movies lately. What I'm have like, you watched? Primarily based for this podcast. My next thing I'm probably going to watch when I get home tonight is, next on the list is a film called The Pawnbroker, which I've been very interested in seeing for a while. I don't know what that is. It is a Sidney Lumet film about a Holocaust oh, survivor. Oh, yes. I do know what this is. Okay, yeah. Okay, Rod yeah. Rod Steiger. Yeah, okay, sure. Have you seen it? No, <laughs> but I know what it is. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch this one for a little while, so I think that's that's next on the list. But I've been watching stuff for this podcast. A lot of stuff I felt, you know what, I haven't seen it in a while, I'll rewatch it. And uh, I also caught up on Why Is This a Thing for this week really early. I don't know why, I just wanted to get this stuff out of the way. So I am caught up. My friend, you've watched all the June Carpenters, or watched a bunch not of June all Carpenters? the June Carpenters that I I really should discount Pawnbroker now. That I think about it and just watch uh, the the Carpenter films. I really need to see. Yeah. Regardless, though, yeah, I've got a lot of things I've I've been seeing. I I, I was recommended this morning to to take a look at the films of John Ritter for okay. Why Is This a Thing? Because apparently he has a lot of stinkers as well. John Ritter, what has he done again? Uh, well, let me let me tell you the movie. It was a movie from the 80s, and it was about some dudes that had to, like, negotiate with the aliens on, like, real estate or some shit. Okay. Forget what it was called. A chud or something? No, it's not chud. Stay tuned. Okay, here it is. A husband and wife are sucked into a hellish television set. Oh, no, this is a different one. And have to survive a gauntlet of twisted versions of shows they find themselves in. That's called Stay Tuned. The other one is called Real Men. A womanizing CIA agent and an insecure insurance agent are paired together to make sure a deal goes through with aliens for the future of mankind. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Jim Belushi and John Ritter. The proposed name was Janu Ritter. Oh. And I thought that was pretty good. Okay, maybe. So coming January. We'll be doing Jason Ritter. Yes. He's gonna, he's, he's, no, not Jason Ritter. John Ritter, John the, Ritter the, 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 the father. We have enough to uh, to support a whole month? I think so. 
right. I just like naming months. I know you do. <laughs> I will not stop until every month has been named. Even if it sucks, like if it's a bad idea, if it's worth the name, we'll just do it. And that's part of the issue. It's a it's a flawed system. It's all about the name, baby. Yeah. It's yeah. all about the name. Yeah, name my scripts for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to talk Clint Eastwood? Yeah. I don't think I've seen anything recently that I wanted to yeah. point out. Uh, let me check my list real quick. Uh, 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 no, actually, no. This is all for the podcast. Okay, right, good. Cool. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Ready? Uh, Clint Eastwood turned 90 this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I saw that. Nine zero. He's 90 years old. Nine fucking zero. And he's still with us. Still working. I know. Is he coming out with another film? Uh, I would imagine. I, I don't know what the status of that production is, but the dude basically makes a movie a year. Yeah, that's so weird how you get older and you work more like that. Not, yeah. Not just like a little bit, but you work prolifically every single year. It's just strange to me how they can manage that kind of energy. Yeah. If I'm chewing my own food at 90 or even alive at 90, I'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Never mind. If I'm working and like making commercially viable movies, like his movies still make money and he still gets high profile talent yeah. and good writers still work with him. He gets the best scripts. He gets the best stories. Um, we're going to talk about Clint's directorial career. We're not going to talk about his acting career today. And I'll be honest, I'm not always the biggest fan of Clint Eastwood, the director. I think he makes a, a lot of decent, crowd-pleasing movies. Um, I think he only has made maybe one or two masterpieces in his life, if that. And I think, for the most part, his movies these days range from okay to terrible. <laughs> terrible, or The it? Mule is a terrible movie. <laughs> the Mule makes me laugh, but it's a really bad movie. Is it that bad? Clint Eastwood has two threesomes in that movie. What? At the age of 90. Okay. Two threesomes. How, how old are these women he is having sex with? Young. Oh. Young. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, they're prostitutes. Okay. But still, I mean, I guess it makes a little bit of sense. Prostitutes would, <laughs> I guess, welcome the, 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 the experience of having sex with 90-year-old Clint Eastwood dick. Yeah, I suppose. I, again... I can't speak from experience here because I'm not 90, nor have I ever talked to a 90-year-old about this. But, I mean, I think it's enough work to get it up for one woman at the age of 90, isn't it? <laughs> you, don't, you don't think if it's anybody who could manage it, it wouldn't be Clint? That's an excellent point. Come on. You got a good point. Come on. Um, <laughs> what do you think Clint Eastwood calls his penis? <laughs> oh, boy. Ooh, there's so many things you could do with this. <laughs> It had was it, the flag be, at Iwo Jima, <laughs> high plains drifter. <laughs> no, ooh, here it is. Here, what? Pale rider. <laughs> it's pale rider. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a pretty productive conversation. So far. <laughs> we We've love, got it. We've got it. <laughs> we love you, Clint. It's pale rider. <laughs> I love Clint. Yeah, of course you do. Who doesn't love Clint? Nobody. Nobody. Crazy. And uh, yeah, not even yeah. Don Rickles has said one bad thing towards uh, Clint Eastwood. What did he say, <laughs> Clint? I know no one has the courage, but I say it from my heart. You're a lousy actor. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love when he was at the roast. We could just quote Don Rickles all up in there. <laughs> when he's at the roast for Marty, they're doing like the oh, AFI tribute to Marty great. and he gives the speech and he says like to Julia Roberts, I never see the broad. She goes right down the street, I never see the broad. And he goes, you know, I look around this room and I realize aside from Clint Eastwood, I'm the biggest name here. <laughs> such an asshole. <laughs> I'm a friend. It's over. <laughs> I'm a friend. It's over is my favorite Don Rickles. <laughs> you got to add the I'm a friend, though. Yeah. It's like I'm coming to you It's with, like with, with sage advice. No, it's it's that or it's I love you. I love you, Frank, but it's over. But it's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What did he say about Charlton Heston? If this man's Moses, I'm a Mau Mau fighter pilot. <laughs> 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 uh, the hospital called you died an hour ago let's do it here we go clint uh, yeah no i mean come on man clint eastwood is yeah. is a legend I, it's kind of crazy 71 acting credits mm-hmm. in his uh, illustrious career 38 movies he's directed since 1971 play misty for me is his first um that's a lot of movies mm-hmm. in less than 50 years 38 mm-hmm. movies again is almost a movie a year uh when he made his first movie in 1971, he was 41 years old. Yeah. Uh, is there any parallel? Is there anyone else in show business that has had such a not only long career, but like has peaked towards the end of his career? Man, I don't know. When I Because when I think about him now, I mean, it's hard to separate him from the director as well. Yeah, he sort of eclipsed himself, which is you would have thought would have been impossible because of how iconic Clint Eastwood is. Yes, but like, yeah, man, he's he's just as much an actor as he is a filmmaker, if not more. A filmmaker. I think he's more so a filmmaker. Yeah, so, and I think that's a testament to what we're doing today. We're talking about him as a director. Uh, yeah, I, I I can't think of another person that was that big a star in his twenties and was a icon, not just a a movie star, but like an icon. Was the Western cowboy. And then ends up having this whole second life, second and third life, where he's actually doing the best work in his 60s and 70s and 80s. Josh Trank. Yeah, good point. Maybe. Maybe Josh Trank's the person. Maybe Trank has that in him. I think he does. Yeah, maybe he's going to make his Unforgiven at age 75 with Tom Hardy. I'm, I'm, I'm holding out for the Trankinator. <laughs> Let's let's bet on it. Jabril's in on this too. <laughs> An aging Tom Hardy returns <laughs> to Hollywood with one last job. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Me sure. Too. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I I'm really excited to talk about Clint today. Me too. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Um. All right. National Film Registry. Two Clint movies in there. What are they? Well, I think they are Unforgiven and The Outlaw Josie Wales. Correct. Uh, I have some honorable mentions. Okay. Feel free to add some. Uh, obviously, Pale Rider. Oh, yeah. Pale Rider. Yeah. <laughs> Named after his penis. Uh, <laughs> High Plains Drifter, 1973. That's a good movie. Old Western. Never saw. Uh, Sudden Impact, 1983. Is the only Dirty Harry movie he directed? I believe so. Yeah. That's the one that I was saying uh, last time we were on the show. That's uh, where he coined, uh, go ahead, make my day. Got it. Okay. Uh, better than the original? No. Okay original still the best it's the original and it's the enforcer and then nothing else i mean in some, they're all like kind of consistently like fine how about deadpool deadpool's not that great okay yeah great idea though i agree yeah yeah jim carrey's very weird in it though yeah i had no idea jim carrey was in that jim carrey is in that movie i had playing no clue like a uh 
You know what's nice about recording in studio again is that happens. It's as soon as I come back. What happened there? I don't know. They heard that we were recording, so they're like... Four months. A, yeah. Not a peep. Hmm. That was sweet. I'd, I, you know what? I don't At least the fire alarms work. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the riots come to your little street. Yeah, know. when they come to suburban Connecticut. <laughs> At least that you'll know that your fire alarms work. Yeah. Uh, Bridges of Madison County. Mm-hmm. 95. Uh, I haven't seen it either, but it's Merrill and it's supposed to be awesome. A lot of fanfare at the Oscars that year. Uh, You have the, um, what do you call it? The saga, the, the dual films, the sister films, flags of our father and letters from Iwo Jima, which I like both. I mean, I like uh, letters from Iwo Jima a lot more, but flags of our fathers, I think is slightly underrated. I've never seen flags of our fathers. I've only seen letters from Iwo Jima. Really cool movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think the idea is just, Awesome. That's a great concept. Um, yeah, Letters from Mujima all almost made the list here. We've um, already talked about it, though. But yeah, we've talked about it quite a bit. Gran Torino. <laughs> I, it's a, I don't know. It's incredibly flawed, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's weirdly fun. Yeah. It's actually fun for the same way the mule is fun. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, like, I, I think Gran Torino is like actually a good movie. I don't think it's great by any means, but uh, I mean, man, when that's on TV, I almost always throw it on. Yeah. So. I think same writer as the mule, actually. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, American Sniper is a bad movie. <laughs> America doesn't agree with you. I know. America saw that movie in droves. I was one of the Americans being like, why does this terrorist run like he's in a Jason Bourne movie? <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> How about the poster of Bradley Cooper in the dude's living room? And he says, oh, wait a minute. The American Sniper is here. What? <laughs> he runs out like it's an action movie. That's ridiculous. That movie's so campy. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, Sully's a pretty good movie. Yeah, I like Sully. Sully's cool. 2016. Yeah. Uh, and then Richard Jewell just came out last year, and I don't think you've seen it yet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was watching Richard Jewell last year, and I think that was the moment where I sort of... Um, I, I, I came to terms with my own Clint skepticism. I, I think, like... For a while there, I always hammered the guy for having no style. Mm-hmm. And I think that's basically true. He doesn't really have an aesthetic other than just turn the lights down. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> very true. You know? And so, like, I, I always wanted a little bit more out of him from behind the camera. And I never seemed to get it, even though, like, his scripts are very good and he gets good performances out of his actors. Um, but then I watch Richard Jewell. And again, nothing was going on behind the camera. But Sam Rockwell was really good. Yeah. Um, and the guy that played Richard Jewell, whose name I'm forgetting, the big dude, I don't know, uh, is really good as well. And the script is really fun. And I'm just like, oh yeah, this is how movies used to get made. True. Like scripts would be written by three or four guys and the studios would get big movie stars to do movie star things. And the director would just sit in the background and film it all. And it was a lot closer to like the experience of seeing a play mm-hmm. than anything else. So I'm not saying that's the way the movie should be made. But it is kind of nice when you watch a Clint Eastwood movie and it's like, oh, yeah, he's not going to get in the way here. No. Yeah. I mean, that's as you sort of hinted at. Sometimes it's a little to his detriment. He can be very distant. Yes. In his in his filmmaking style. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, is there a style? I guess there really isn't. I mean, when I. I 
Well, unless his style is the lack of a style. I guess. It, like, I, the, here's the thing, though, is that I'm very good at spotting Clint films. Yeah. It's the other, like, I, I don't know. I feel like you, you can kind of do it. Like, there's a certain, like, somber seriousness to his films, and they're very dark and moody, and they treat the material in a way that's very, very mature. But everything is taken seriously in a Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 the shadows are super heavy. Yes. Even in scenes where people are in their home it's like why don't you turn on a light <laughs> lots the, of contrast the love of god turn on your <laughs> fucking lights <laughs> but i noticed that uh even more so when rewatching the outlaw josie wales as to like how naturalistic the lighting is it doesn't right. even seem like there's a ton of setups going on unforgiven's the same way yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. so i don't know the, like that adds a, a completely different atmosphere than say something like sergio leone's films despite the obvious style that's going on in those kinds of films right well it it does work to his detriment when he's trying comedy. Um, <laughs> when's he trying to comedy? When's he trying comedy? Well, rarely, but I, here's the thing though about the mule or Gran Torino is there are clearly lines in there that can be funny. Yeah. Even the hands of the right director, but Clint just takes everything very, very, very seriously. Everything is played straight. Mm-hmm. C- kind of similar to how his Westerns were played. His Western films specifically, but it works really well in his Western films. I don't know. I yeah. like, I like him in that more than say again, like, Something like I don't know, Changeling, right? <laughs> or which I don't mind Changeling, but uh, you know, it I've never okay. seen it. It's okay. That's Joe Lee, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, but like it doesn't work in um, what the fuck is that movie? Oh, it's so bad. Um, 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 with Matt Damon. Oh, oh, Jay Edgar. No, not, not Jay Edgar. Not Jay Edgar. He's like he can that, like read. Oh, the, is that Leo and Jay Edgar? Yeah, yeah. What the hell is that movie? Uh, God, blood can, work. No, space bl- cowboy. Blood work is dope. <laughs> Fucking Jeff <laughs> Jeff Daniels in that movie is off the chain. Oh, it's really good. I like, really, I like blood work. I mean, it's not like I mean with a name like blood work. <laughs> blood work is a cool ass movie. Um, I don't know what the Matt Damon movie is you're talking about. It's like it's very. He can like read people's palms and like predict their future. True crime. He can talk to the dead. You know, Midnight in the Garden of Evil. No, good and evil. No, it's like it came out. You know, like after Invictus. Uh, hereafter. Hereafter. There yeah. it is. Ugh, not so great. Not a fan of that's the ugh. man. I've missed a lot of these. I didn't see Jersey Boys. I didn't see Jersey Boys either. I heard a lot of bad things about that one. Invictus is okay. Yeah, I like Invictus. Freeman's good in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man. I, I, I just think seeing a Clint Eastwood movie is closer to the experience of seeing a play than seeing like a Sergio Leone movie. <laughs> You know, I, well, I mean, yeah, I, it's which is why it makes it interesting to see movies like Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, where the, there are these really high octane, violent right. war scenes that happen. It's right. like, the fact that he could still do that, and though that wasn't terribly long ago, he would have been what in his eighties when he made those movies. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I would say it's it's astounding. Yeah. Also, like studios love working with him. Yeah, he's well, he always he goes under budget. <laughs> he always gets done by lunchtime. Yeah. You know, nothing is, is, for example, Richard Jewell last year, that movie was supposed to come out this year or the following year that it did come out. It came out, what, 2018, 2018 so. movie or 20, yeah. no, 2019 movie. Okay. It was last year. That was supposed to be a 2020 movie. They filmed it in like August 
Yeah. It was shot less than a year ago, and they got it out by December time. So, like, the dude does not insert himself. The dude is not a diva behind the camera. No. He's not Martin Scorsese begging Apple for $300 million to do a serial killer movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, studios like working with him, and clearly actors adore working with him. Well, that's true. I mean, there's a f- there's only a handful of directors I can think of that are capable of doing that. I mean, you have, like, the obvious, like, Spielbergs, but Clint is one of them. I suppose Woody is kind of one. The, the other mm-hmm. one, I, is this sounds kind of weird to say but a closer example for me is actually ridley scott yeah there's something about the way he just pumps out movies and the names he gets attached to the movies even if the films aren't always great right he's still he's like he ridley scott i suppose is like the clint eastwood of genre films i guess that makes any sense i think james mangold is in the clint eastwood lineage Mm, in many ways maybe makes like above average like studio movies but he's not pumping them out the same way that ridley scott or clint eastwood is that's true so i don't know there's there's a i don't know a level of like 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 i don't know career and serviceability and production line quality to their movies right at least now i mean that was i wouldn't say that that was the case for them back in the day because if you look at clint eastwood's career it's like oh he made uh uh what the fuck is that movie firefox or something about the stealth jet it's like oh yeah space cowboy <laughs> what it's, it, earlier in his career he was i mean it sounds funny to say but even in his 40s and 50s he was a little more youthful right um, but yes then he gets to the point where he's just making you know grand torino five times over so. <laughs> which look man nothing wrong with that i would rather have five grand torinos then yeah. one avatar and then 15 years without anything from James Cameron. You know yeah. what I mean? And I have the same feelings towards like, like David Fincher. It's like, I know you're capable of producing more movies, so please produce more movies. Just too. make them, man. Yeah. They don't have to be perfect every time. Yeah. You don't have to wait for inspiration to strike. No, no. I'm, I'm glad Fincher's releasing a movie, but hey, it took him, Jesus Christ, six years. It took him six years to make another movie. Dude, my level of excitement for Mank oh, is unhealthy. <laughs> it's more, well, I was going to say, it's more more even your film than it is my I, I cannot <laughs> contain how excited i am for mank shot in black and white too yeah yeah dude give me mank now i'm very excited for G- give me the the rough cut i don't care man do yeah. it before the sound mix just let me watch it oh i can't wait for that one i'm just amazed that he's actually putting out another movie yeah it's pretty nuts uh all right let's do this the five nominees for induction into the movie hall of fame play misty for me the outlaw josie wales unforgiven mystic river and million dollar baby in chronological order let's start with 1971 and clint's debut play misty for me of course it stars clint eastwood jessica walter and donna mills nominated for best actress in a drama at the golden globe awards nothing at the oscars given complete freedom by universal pictures clint eastwood finished shooting four days ahead of schedule (laughs) and fifty thousand dollars under budget that right there is all you need to know about clint's career yep you know that's it that's all you need to know like action cut let's break for lunch (laughs) just get this done good enough we're moving on uh sometimes like you need to play within the rules Sometimes you got to be a system quarterback. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just have to be Tom Brady. You don't have to be Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I love the stories that people tell about him, too, where it's just like he, Tom Hanks saying that he treats his actors like horses. Right. It's a, it's a great story. <laughs> All right, go ahead. That's enough of that. <laughs> I could hear him just saying that to me. Uh, I love it. I'd be like, yes, Mr. Eastwood. <laughs> don't hurt me. Yeah. Uh, the life of a disc jockey is turned upside down after a romantic encounter with an obsessed fan. 
you watched this movie for the first time this yeah. week? Okay. Yeah. And? I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I've been saying that about a lot of his movies. This is a really cool movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, not what I would have expected for a first time feature as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's funny that this is the movie that he wanted to make. I don't know what that says about Clint Eastwood as a person or his relationship towards so being a celebrity and fandom itself. Um, I, regardless, it's just like a really uh, – boy – it's not like any other like psychological thriller that I've seen, if I'm being honest. Mm. I mean, there's so much time given to like the, the personal relationships that Clint Eastwood develops with uh, his other girlfriend. I don't know. Is it a girlfriend? Well, yeah, the girlfriend, the girl, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The other one's a stalker. I wouldn't yeah. call her a girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. And sort of how that develops and how the story progresses. The movie has like four acts, which I found sort of interesting. Like uh-huh. right, right when I thought the movie was going to end, it kind of goes on and I'm like – Oh, okay. Something different is happening. Right, 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 right. It's a little ambitious in the way it chooses to, I don't know, present the story and structure it. But um, uh, I don't know. What, what do you mean ambitious? Like, uh, like the story didn't make sense? Not that it didn't make sense, but there's <laughs> it, it just takes its time. I mean, right when you thought the craziest thing that could have possibly happened has happened, it calms down a bit and then it gets even crazier. Yes. I'm like, oh, it, it sort of reminded me of Audition in that way, oddly. Wow, okay. Uh, uh is similar movie, uh, ironically. No shit. Yeah. Okay. Audition's so fucking good. All right. I'm sorry, dude, but it is. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was thoroughly entertaining, and it got pretty creepy at a certain point. I, it was pretty effective. And I mean, that third act is, is nuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, certainly some logical leaps are made in that third act. But but what it is, I mean, this is about as Hitchcockian as you could get. I mean, I can't believe Hitchcock never made this movie. Right. It feels so much like that, not just with subject matter, but also aesthetic, mm. just in the way the movie pops visually to the way the, the, the movie moves the camera. To, Lots of zooms. Yeah, a lot of countryside traveling on the road and right. all that other stuff. And just that femme fatale element that's just, it's not like romantic at all. It is just creepy and not nauseating to watch at times and embarrassing. Right. But, oh man. Yeah. I, I really like the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I liked it too. I, I couldn't help but think about basic instinct as I was watching it. <laughs> really? Uh. Yeah, I did. I, I just thought about all those nineties erotic fillers, the fatal attractions of the world, the cruel intentions of the world, even like stuff that's a little schlockier and also sexier and scarier. And you know, if you want to say that this movie was ahead of its time, then you can say that. Yeah. Uh, I just felt like it wasn't like thrilling enough to be a thriller or sexy enough to be erotic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, it, it sort of failed at both aspects of being a genuine erotic thriller. Um, is that what it is? An erotic thriller though? I mean, there are, well, the story is right. I, I guess. I mean, my, my idea of an erotic thriller is pretty much basic instinct though i mean it doesn't get more cut and dry than that it needs to be a little sexier than this yeah you know well that's kind of what i mean though like the movie came out in 1971 and had it had come out in 1990 i i imagine it would have been a lot more grittier is that what you think it's shooting for though i just think it's trying to be a pretty decent you know uh, psychological thriller i guess not i i kind of wish that it did though sure i think that's my point i think that's what the material called for yeah it, it's no like fatal attraction which is in my, in my opinion the best uh-huh so no i i just think it's a matter of era i think it comes out in 1971 psycho was uh, only a few years before yeah. and it's trying to be psycho um and fails in every way because the movie is not psycho yeah. um whereas if this comes out in 1994 
Um, and someone like Paul Verhoeven makes it. Yeah. You know, I, I just feel like you can really go all the way with the material. Like there's a sex scene in this movie between Clint Eastwood and Donna Mills, his girlfriend. And they're like in the woods, just banging in the woods. <laughs> it's the strangest part of the entire movie. It's where, so fucking weird. Where I'm just like, and it goes on for so long. Right. It's like, the, it's like this elongated 10 second shot each montage sequence. Right. Of them just like laying down naked in some ferns, <laughs> which by the way, terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend. I, I wouldn't recommend the possibility of ever getting poison ivy. <laughs> On your groin how about ticks dude forget the poison ivy it's terrible it's all the creatures i was like what is that creek you just found you're gonna get leeches and, ah! and a crayfish is gonna bite you or something like fuck that as I, first time ever i saw your face plays in the background it's the strangest aspect of the movie and i'm it's the only part where i'm like okay yeah like why are we lingering on this it doesn't work. and the music cue is so weird too yeah, yeah. like that's such a beautiful song and it's playing during such a ridiculous montage <laughs> But that's kind of what I mean, though. We, we talk about how Clint like plays everything straight all the time. Yeah. When you're dealing with material that's a little campy and a little B-movie-ish, you kind of want someone like Paul Verhoeven handling it. Mm -hmm. You know, like if the script isn't perfect, Clint Eastwood is not going to, um, I guess, what's the word? He's not going to salvage the campier elements of it. No. Like he's just going to make the campier elements look ridiculous. I suppose. This, but this just, I don't know. It just reminded me of the same stuff, like I said, that Hitchcock would have done. Right. It didn't feel like certainly out of place with any of that stuff. It reminded me of things like, I don't know, Dial M for Murder or Rear Window in a weird way. Yeah, sure. You know, not to say that it's related to that kind of stuff in terms of story. It's just in style and aesthetic and the way it moves. It's very similar. It's very effective at being that. Yeah. So I wasn't particularly bothered by it. I wasn't expecting it to be an erotic thriller when I first saw it. I just you know sat down. I was like, what is this thing? Yeah. And I just thought it was interesting. And it's <laughs> I, like I said, I didn't ex expect Clint to want to go for a movie quite like this. But yeah. Yeah. No, he hasn't made a movie like this since then. I yeah. don't think. Right. Yeah. But I think the real selling point is the woman that plays the stalker. Yeah. Jessica Walter is her name. And I just think she's wonderful. Yeah. She's she's quite fun. And just the little things, too. Even when she's not like doing crazy faces, just when she's like staring plainly out of just out of, out of something Clint says to her. Right. It's quite obvious. Like she didn't respond to that well, but she's trying her best not to explode. And mm. I love the little touches where she's like, yeah, get lost, asshole. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> and she's got great teeth for this role too mm. it's like there, there's one tooth that's like slightly discolored and slightly off and she's always smiling yes it's really terrible there's and no she's not an unattractive woman but it's like the just that smile man you should have known run away well i just think it's great casting i just look at her and i'm like you're not quite a movie star right but you're you're you fit you fit into this character nice enough where it's like, I could buy that Clint would go for you for you right. know, a, a small little fling. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, I look at you, I'm like, yeah, you could be crazy. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it makes total sense afterwards. It's not like overt, though, is what I'm saying. It's just <laughs> the right tinge of possibly nuts. Yeah. And it comes out wonderfully. It's always paid off. And especially in the scene where he talks with his, uh, like a radio agent or something like that. It's just a great scene. Yeah. Great scene of just breaking down. And the, the, the movie does have a lot of wonderful moments like that, but I don't know. It's, it's fairly unexpected in, in, in how crazy she gets. I didn't think she was going to slash up the, the maid in the way that she, <laughs> like that is both horrifying and funny at the same time. Yes. Did, did you, cause it's just like, Oh my gosh, she's actually doing this. <laughs> Where did that come no, from? The movie is full of those moments though, yeah. of unintentional comedy. 
I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but the twist in the, I guess, fourth act involving the book and the name featured in the poem, uh, like if Hitchcock's directing it, fine. Like he can sell that. <laughs> But Clint Eastwood can't sell that. <laughs> Clint Eastwood doesn't have it in him to sell that. It's not like it's, it, it fully doesn't work. Like, you get the idea. It just doesn't hit with the, oh, my God. Right. It's not quite like that. Yeah, it's like, how did you fool me? Yeah. It, exactly right. It's none of that. It's, it's not like a David Fincher-esque third. If David Fincher makes this movie, it's... Oh, it's a lot better. Yeah, I think by far and away, it's so much better. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's like a perfect endeavor by Clint Eastwood's part, but... Uh, I, I still think it's a fairly entertaining little uh, psycho thriller uh, in and of itself for what it is anyway. And I, like I said, I love the, 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 the final like 10 minutes where he goes to the house. I just think it's really well shot and, and, and the atmosphere is great and creepy. Oh, Genuinely very creepy. Yeah. Every, and every time the, uh, she comes out at him, it's actually quite startling. And one of the greatest punches in any movie great punch holy shit such a satisfying punch oh i was so happy i was i was I, again it's one of the few moments in a while where i've cheered at a movie i was like yes yes fuck yeah and it's it goes even further with her stumbling off the cliff and it shows you her just hitting the rocks on the way down i'm like fuck yeah i love this so that was good yeah uh i i think yeah it's a first feature um again it, he was 41 when he made this clint eastwood was not like a destined to be a filmmaker person um, he became a filmmaker because he spent so much time hanging out in the business. So, you know, a lot of directors come out right out the gate swinging and it's like, oh my God, who's this Martin Scorsese kid? Well, I mean, Clint's not going to give you that in his first feature and nor should he, by the way. No, but I think it's a really good effort for his first feature. Yeah. That being said, I would say like, let me, let me put it this way. If, uh, if he had never acted before, this was his first feature, all that, this would be, I'd be like, oh shit. Yeah. yeah, well, like show us more kid. Yeah, you know, or guy because he's forty one years old. Right. <laughs> show us more guy. <laughs> the funny thing about Clint is he obviously he's been old for a very long time because yeah. he's ninety years old. <laughs> but like every movie, he's on like the back half of something. Every year, it feels like this is one final hurrah. It's like the DJ that's hung around in this <laughs> in this small radio station for 20 years, and yep. he's finally getting his break. Yep. I mean, I'm, I was watching Outlaw Josie Wales earlier, and <laughs> it's like, yes, one final ride into the sunset. It's like, bro, that movie came out 50 years ago. Yep. That ain't your final act. Hollywood's weird, man. So it just didn't predict it right. I don't know. He's just a he's a brilliant man. Uh, couldn't you know traversing hollywood the way that he did yeah, it's, it's it's just weird though it's like once you pass 32 you're old now in i know. hollywood he, he's been the same age since million dollar baby as far as i'm concerned yeah i, I think that's fair there, there are like stages of clint yes uh someone on letterbox pointed out to me uh that this was the movie that introduced clint to monterey peninsula which is uh where they shot this movie and where he currently lives today oh. Interesting. That's like his hometown. He was familiar with the area, and that's why he chose to shoot there. Um, Don Siegel, director of Escape from Alcatraz and Dirty Harry, mm-hmm. uh, plays the bartender in this movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And so Don Siegel was sort of Clint's mentor, um, and he sort of wanted him by his side as he was shooting this movie. I see. Sort of like a, a watchful hand. And I, I thought that was kind of touching because i know that movie trouble with the curve that came out a few years ago which starred clint one of the few movies that clint starred in but didn't direct Mm -hmm. was directed by one of his former pupils Ah. um 
and I, I don't know exactly like what the mechanism, I think he was like an assistant director on million dollar baby and Gran Torino and stuff. I see. Um, so that was like the one movie that he decided to do for someone else. And I just kind of think that's a cool, like passing of the torch moment. Like this is what Don Siegel did for me at the beginning of my uh, career. And this is what I'm going to do for this kid. I was always confused as to why he was in that movie. I was like, I thought right. you were done acting altogether, dude. What's, what is this? Yeah. No, oh, that makes sense. Just though. that fraternity of filmmaking that I really like. He's, he's a good dude. That he, Clint. Yeah. What a mensch. Yeah. That's play Misty for me. I don't know about his son, Scott Eastwood, but uh what, what do you know anything about him i know that he didn't get along very well with people on the set of anything that he's ever done okay <laughs> he, he's constantly getting in uh trouble with people for some reason clint's got like kids all over the place yeah yeah i know he's got like a hundred thousand kids a very messy love life yeah what well, can you blame him what did you expect? i mean if you're clint man i don't know <laughs> i don't know very you know uh children out of wedlock and uh open marriages and all sorts of stuff wow I would love to track his family tree. It's probably a fucking mess. There is no one that has lived a fuller life than Clint Eastwood. I'm very happy for the guy. Me too. He made some good movies. Outlaw Josie Wales mm. from 1976 starring Clint Eastwood, Chief Dan George and Sandra Locke nominated for best original score at the Academy Awards. Missouri farmer Josie Wales joins a Confederate guerrilla unit and winds up on the run from the Union soldiers who murdered his family. Question for you. This is the first time I've seen this movie. Yeah. Question for you. Uh, what are the chances that a Western comes out in 2020 starring the biggest movie star in the world as a Confederate soldier seeking revenge on the Union Army? <laughs> Today? Yeah. Less than zero. Okay. Let me add an additional fact that makes this production even more shocking. The Outlaw Josie Wales was inspired by a 1972 novel by former KKK leader Forrest Carter. And it was originally titled The Rebel Outlaw Josie Wales and later retitled to Gone to Texas. Clan leader. That's right. Wrote this movie. (laughs) Those damn Union soldiers pillaging our homes and raping our women. (laughs) We're here to make friends with some Indians and seek revenge. Yeah. Insane. I had no idea. He was a Confederate guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a little surprising. It's, again, I, you think of the, what you just said, where it's like, wow, this would not get made today. No shot. Regardless as to how good the movie is, would not get made today. Yeah. Um, but as I just reiterated, yeah, um, I think it's a great film. I also think it's a great film. Yeah. I, I loved it quite a bit. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I was shocked how much that detail didn't take me out of the movie. It doesn't, <laughs> honestly, it doesn't really, you sort of forget about the fact that it's a, a, a union Confederate thing. I mean, it's, it really isn't. I mean, a lot of it is about uh, just sort of the personal stuff that happened between Josie and the, the what is it? The Red Legs. Yes. Yeah. And that's really all it is. And it's just his own personal journey as a human being. Yeah. I mean, it's about reconstruction more than anything else. Yeah. Like it's, it's about how all the pieces of society have been scattered all over the place after the war and who's left to pick them up and put them back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea that like 600,000 people died during the civil war, yeah. which was like 20% of the population is insane. Yeah. And like you think about it now, if you put it into the context of today, you'd be like, how would we go on? How would our nation survive oh my this? God. You know, like the entire nation shooting each other and killing yeah. each other. Um, so, like, 
you know, if movies were around then, uh, I, I can only imagine how much material there would be there. It's got to be a pretty shocking, traumatic event mm-hmm. to live through. Yeah. Uh, so there's that undercurrent all throughout it. I, I, I guess it didn't really matter which side was which. No. Uh, didn't matter that we were rooting for the Confederate guy. <laughs> because everyone was sort of undergoing the same trauma, you know? Well, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like he holds a lot of uh, the Confederacy's convictions. Sure. He's just going, like I said, his own personal gain is what puts him on this journey. Right. And I kind of like, I mean, saying it's about reconstruction is pretty much exactly right, especially towards the end where the movie basically insinuates, yeah, it's at at a certain point, all that like, like, you know, destruction and chaos doesn't mean anything next to like just starting a community over again. Right. Which is what he tries to do. And I guess he, kind of does tries to build a family again yeah, yeah. right yeah he, he, his in the first 10 minutes of this movie it's actually pretty shocking how quick this was oh god his wife and child are murdered and burned up in a in a fiery blaze mm-hmm. um and so right away that's when the title card hits as soon as the murder happens yeah so yeah it's it's really unconcerned with the um the disintegration of the family and is only concerned about rebuilding the family. Yep. It's all about the second act. It's all about how do you pick up the pieces after everything else has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think that that's an interesting theme. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps a theme that this country will be <laughs> grappling with for the next decade. Well, I was going to say the theme in this is a little more like selfless than than say like something like if this was a Confederate film, if it had that mindset and if right. it was made by a bunch of, you know, racist dickheads. I'm sure the novel was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then it would be a little more like let's rebuild the country in our image. But it's not concerned with that at all. It's much more interested in like a pure family ideal, yeah. which is what we get. You know, people from all walks of life. I mean, you get the the kind of weird girl and then you get the old grandmother to the Indians, Yeah, you know, to even just these strange outlaws that you, Josie, I mean, I guess subjectively, if we were to look at him before he became an outlaw, he, he probably wouldn't associate with any of any of these guys. But, you know, just kind of, uh, sort of found them having a similar necessities as him. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, it's it's. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's just one of those like really unexpected films for me because I, I I think when I think of the Clint Eastwood westerns, you know, there's a fair few of them that are pretty good, but I mean they all kind of pale in comparison next to Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. But this is a worthy uh, uh, contender in terms of like if you were to say this is his best western, I'd be like okay. Yeah, I think it gets pretty damn close yeah. to Unforgiven. I don't think it quite gets there either. Um, you know, one of the things I like about this character too, and it's one of the things I actually like about westerns. Um, just how like competent the hero is. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this last night cause I was watching the news and I was just in like a really bad place. Just watching the yeah. country fall apart. And so I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to go watch the Looney tunes. Mm. And so I flipped on HBO max and they have every Looney tunes short on there. And I'm just watching bugs bunny. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it about bugs bunny that I love so much? And it's that he's smart. Yeah. It's that he, knows how to outsmart the the Tasmanian devil and Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam. He always has the, the leg up on these guys. And I think like there are so many cartoons and actually so many works of fiction that glorify the idiot and that yeah. mock the idiot. And it's kind of fun seeing like the smart guy <laughs> being able to show off his intelligence. And that's one of the things I loved about this movie. Like it's a survival film but it's a survival film where a hero doesn't make many mistakes. No. Uh, at the beginning where he uh, he lures the, the, the posse onto the boat 
or I guess onto the ferry and shoots the rope. I love that. And scene. strands them in the middle. It's like, hell yeah. That's just like so innovative, man. Mm-hmm. It's so inventive. Um, and I don't know. I, I kind of, I kind of miss the not flawed hero in many ways. The movie, I mean, it depends on how you do it. I mean, if you make your person like, if if they have no flaws and there's, it's just that they have no flaws and they don't they don't do anything fun or entertaining with it, then it's it's just nothingness and the character's fairly boring. I'm sh- a lot of things that people had issues with with the new Star Wars trilogy, whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, but in this, it's actually entertaining to see how. Uh, Josie is going to outsmart these people. Yes. Because they always feel like these new and clever and creative ways. I mean, uh, when he when he gets Uncle Leo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great moment. It's fantastic. I love, but it's like, oh my, like how could he get out of this? Right. And then he does, I'm like, fuck yeah, that was really, really satisfying. And right. the movie is strung together with moments like that. It's just so entertaining too. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like even, even though it is supposed to be kind of like a fun ride and that's complemented with the music, which is very pronounced mm-hmm. a lot more so than any other film that I've seen by him actually. Yeah. It's very big. Oh, his movies very rarely feature music anymore. I know. Yeah. It's very, there's odd. just no music in them at all. Yeah. It's just different. Yeah. It's a completely different time for him. But he was, like, I guess, allowed to do that. Yeah. Because nowadays it would be different. But uh, yeah, no, the film feels m- much more mature and it has a lot more to say about uh, humanity's uh, relationship with each other. And obviously that the most overt example of that is the Indians, mm-hmm. you know. And that was another experience where I'm just like, you, you can't get out of this alive. They're going to kill you. Right. And then somehow he manages to talk to them the way that they needed to hear it. So I loved it. Yeah, he um <laughs> he Clint calls this movie an anti-war film. Uh and I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um it, it's just showing you the rubble, just showing you uh uh all the pieces before they've been put back together and like how war can destroy a country and family and well, and our bonds with one another. Of course it's an anti-war film. Yeah. It starts with his family being killed by soldiers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it, but it's not a war film though. It, I, it's just showing you the casualties of it. Yeah, I know. It's it's the I mean, it's the most unusual war film I've ever seen. I know what he means though, right. you know. It's more about the, the civil war on the periphery of everything. Right. Yeah. But I just yeah, it's I think it's very effective in being that. And also just the gunfights. And I think in many ways it does exemplify a lot of the the sort of Clint Eastwood uh, um, watermarks, yeah, it, it uh, is drenched in just dourness and in tragedy and in regret and aging. All of his movies are like that, man, and it like it takes a very mature filmmaker to be able to to grapple with those themes, and it's what I respect most about him. You know, this I mean, he's very good at like selling you on bittersweet endings. That's yes. certainly what this is. Oh, it's a great ending. It's awesome. so good. I, I guess the war changed all of us. So good. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I really, I, I, it's a movie that I see all the time. I've seen this movie a lot. Really? A lot of that is just because it's, it's on TV frequently. And, and I always sit down and catch it. And it's just, again, one of the, one of the better yeah, Eastwood Western characters too. It's just really, really fun to watch and learn from him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, I do too. A uh, little bit of, behind the scenes stuff here um there was a big feud on the set of this movie a man by the name of philip kaufman was supposed to direct this movie mm. in fact he cast the movie scouted all the locations for the movie showed up day one to direct the movie and clint was the star and uh 
they had some disagreements about content. They had some disagreements about like, I think certain props and they feuded a lot on set, but here's the real story. Both Clint Eastwood and Philip Kaufman asked out Sandra Locke. What's her name? Sandra Locke. Ah, yeah. At the same time. And, uh, I guess Philip was rejected and Clinton, her went on to have a 16 year relationship with one another. <laughs> and I think they have kids together and everything. Oh boy. And so evidently it was a bit of a love triangle. They were just fighting over a girl on the set of a movie. And so Clint gets Philip Kaufman fired. Whoa. Okay. Oh no. Takes the role of director for himself, <laughs> goes on to direct the rest of the movie the Directors Guild, obviously, pissed off because of this. Uh, they end up fining the studio, I think, $600,000, something around those lines. And uh, they end up passing this new rule, the Directors Guild does, known as the Eastwood Rule, which prohibits an actor or producer from firing the director and then becoming the director himself. That is no longer allowed in a Hollywood production because Clint Eastwood stole a girl from Philip Kaufman. Sorry, Edward Norton. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> How about that, man? A little bit of Hollywood drama for you. They're all such children. I Seriously. Know. You're trying to you're trying to get a, a job done and you're letting a fucking broad get in the way. <laughs> <laughs> I also read a excerpt from Sandra Locke's um, oh memoir. Oh no. I'm not gonna go into it. But it describes Clinton her first night together, and she goes into explicit detail. How they made love multiple times. I'd suggest you read that. Is Clint Eastwood like <laughs> just the perfect human being in every way? I think that's the point. It's like he, every like cliche you could possibly imagine. And if you're on the girl side, like he must be amazing in bed. Mm. He probably is amazing in bed. Can't wait to get a load of the old <laughs> pale rider. <laughs> Show me your pale rider. Mm. Make my day. <laughs> Did he fire? Did he fire six shots or only five? <laughs> to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I kind of lost track. I can't. <laughs> I was trying to think of something from the mule, and it's not coming to me. It's just not coming to me. Adam gets the win on this okay, one. Okay, you win. You win this battle, Hall. Unforgiven. You want to talk about it? Briefly. Briefly. Yeah, we already talked about it. Class mm. of 1992. Uh, Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, and Morgan Freeman star. Winner of Best Picture, Director, Supporting Actor, Film Editing. Also nominated for Best Actor, Original Screenplay, Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Art Direction. Uh, number four, Western of All Time, according to AFI. Number 68, Movie of All Time. Uh, I, it's, you know, this and Butch Cassidy. They're my two favorite Westerns. Um, as we've said a million times, like there are very few directors that can approach this sort of material with the maturity that Clint does and with the seriousness that Clint does, but he also manages to get great performances out of his actors. Gene Hackman is off the chain in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's my favorite Gene Hackman performance. He steals every scene he's in. Um, and it's just, it's a tour de force. It's, it's all wheels clicking. Everything, everything works in this. It's the perfect storm for Clint. Right time, right place. Uh, classic. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. It's a masterpiece. There's about as close to perfect as a movie can get. Um, it's, 
it's every director I suppose has this in them where they have like one taxi driver. Yes. This to me feels like Clint's taxi driver. Yeah. Where it's like everything about it works for him. Everything about the timing is perfect for him. If he had made it at any other point, it wouldn't have been as good. Uh, it says so much about him and his career and his image and even the genre that has sort of encapsulated him over all this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think it's a work of filmmaking and just sheer storytelling execution. It doesn't get much better than this. Mm-hmm. I love everything about this movie. Yeah, and, and also – Clint Eastwood has to star in this movie. Yes. Clint Eastwood has to direct this movie. That's my point, though. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no other way to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think John Malkovich was supposed to star and Coppola was supposed to direct at first. Re- that would have been interesting. Yeah, I think we talked about that on the last podcast yeah. we did about this. Um, you know, maybe, but it doesn't have that weightiness. It doesn't have all of that life in it. In a way, like, when you look at stuff like that and you have that knowledge of the outside stuff, like from our perspective when we look at like film history and we look at what Clint has done thinking about him inside of this movie and making this movie actually makes it all the more impactful yes so no it is sort of meta commentary in and of itself to cast Clint Eastwood there Mm -hmm. um and yeah the movie is it not only comments on the western and uh you know a dying art form but also comments on Clint's career Mm -hmm. and what he meant to this whole process also kind of weird. It's 1992. The movie fears, feels like a farewell. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why the Academy gives him best picture. <laughs> yep. Little did they know, man, 30 years later, he's still going. Yeah. Uh, it's again, just speaks to what an unbelievable career this guy had. Well, it's even to the next two films. We're going to talk about how much Oscar buzz they were getting and how one in particular, you know, won it pretty big. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's you would have thought that this was like his last hurrah and that's all he's going to ever have in him. But to see him go on and do even more is pretty in- incredible. Feels like a swan song for sure. This is the ending of, in my opinion, like that Josie well- Wales era Clint Eastwood, which lasted a very long time. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the new era of Clint, like the old man, uh, Clint doesn't happen until million dollar baby. Yes. You know? He kind of reminds me of Al Pacino in that way where there are stages of Al Pacino, you know? Well, Pacino, though, becomes more of a caricature of himself. <laughs> People could say the same about Clint Eastwood. I, I actually disagree with you. I think I, it's I, the complete opposite. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I think he starts as a caricature and becomes yeah. this well-rounded artist. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's such a miracle. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, some people would probably make the argument, no, come on, he's he's the gruffy old man. You right. Know? But that's not, yeah. It's just false. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely false. Um, yeah. We all got it coming, kid. <laughs> we all got it coming. I love it. <laughs> he had it coming. Uh, all right. Yeah, that's that's enough, I think. If you want a more in-depth conversation, we talked about it when we did a class in 1992. Here we go. Mystic River. Let's do this. <laughs> 2003. Based on the novel by Dennis Lehane. Mm-hmm. Starring Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Kevin Bacon, Lawrence Fishburne, Marsha Gay Harden, and Laura Linney. Winner of Best Lead Actor and Best Supporting Actor, Sean Penn and Tim Robbins win both awards at the Oscars that year. Also nominated for Best Picture, Supporting Actress, Director, and Adapted Screenplay. The lives of three men who were childhood friends are shattered when one of them has a family tragedy. Uh, You know, this is just one of those little bitch fights we get in all the time. We always bicker about this. I don't. Movie. I don't want to have a bitch fight. I'm more curious than any, than anything. Yeah, I know. I I I agree. Yeah. Let's uh, let's approach this amicably, shall we? Mm-hmm. Uh, you like this movie. I don't get it. I'm on the record as not getting it. 
Um, if I were to boil all my thoughts down into one, um, this movie is about the uh, disintegration of a relationship that uh, was never built up in the first place. And I think that's my main problem with the movie. Uh, it's about three friends who um, who fall apart and that turn on each other and betray each other late in their lives. But the movie spends no time building it up. And I just don't buy these three friends. I don't buy their friendship. I don't buy that they care about each other. And so if I can't feel that they care about each other, I don't care when they fall apart. I mean, my my, my only takeaway was that at least when I read the film, when I first saw it, because I actually really love this film. It's I know you do. one of my favorites. Um, but I, I felt like it was a relationship that they had as kids and then this horrible thing happens, and then ever since then they are estranged friends and nothing else. Whereas, like in their later years, when we go from them as children to when we see them as adults, when we flash forward, um, it just feels like Sean Penn and Tim Robbins—they sort of acknowledge each other, but and they might consider each other friends if someone were to ask, but they're not really friends. Yeah, that was sort of always the vibe that I got. And then you get Kevin Bacon's character who outright says, "No, we're not friends anymore. I haven't speak, spoken to these kids in years." Yes. Um. And I, I don't know, I sort of read it more as a movie that's about, um, I guess, like when you're negligent to something that happens to someone that cares about you and you let the past catch up to you, it can have some really heinous effects. Mm-hmm. If you think about it too much or if you try to push it away or, or sub, uh, I guess, suppress those those thoughts, it just makes your life kind of miserable and you don't understand how bad it's going to actually be until it actually, again, catches up to you, like I said. And that's, I guess, where where it relates more to me. I sort of did buy them as a strange friends. They sort of worked much better for me in that way. And it always felt present and it made more sense to me when they could actually sit down and talk to each other. Like when I couldn't, the line, I couldn't cry for my daughter yeah. when he's sitting on the porch and they're, they're chatting and Tim Robbins says, uh, uh, you're crying now. Like I really bought them like, Oh, these guys were friends long ago until something happened, you know, and the entire movie feels like that's looming over them, but it also makes sense for them to be that way so that they can turn on each other in the end. I just felt like that traumatic event is the thing that just sort of separated them. Right. And they never wanted to talk about it. They're like, okay, yeah, this horrible thing happened, but maybe it's best to just not really worry about it. Mm -hmm. You know, let's, let's try to push it off and still go on normally. And of course you can't really do that. And I think that's a very true human idea, right? It's about chickens coming home to roost. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I understand that, but again, this movie climaxes with a betrayal. Yeah. Right. This movie climaxes with a very explicit betrayal, by the way. Um, and a, a pretty heinous act of violence. And I just, don't care when that happens. Really? And I, I just can't get past that. I, I saw that moment and I thought to myself, man, this should really be affecting me and I'm indifferent towards it. And I think part of the reason is because I don't buy the relationship. Um, part of the reason is I don't really care about these characters. And this is, I think one of the examples of Clint getting too far out of the way. Mm. There's a little too much of a remove. This is a very cold movie. Well, it makes sense here given the subject matter. I guess so. Um, but it is it is cold blooded as hell. There there is nothing really redeeming about any of these people. These are just like bad guys. <sighs> I mean, I I I don't know. I don't know. They're kind of bad. I mean, Sean Penn's a bad guy. Bad certainly. dude. Certainly. Whereas, but like Tim Robbins character, I just felt horrible for him. Yeah. And again, they just feel like lost people. I, yes. I'm, I'm sure, I guess maybe that's why 
I connected to it in a weird way because I kind of get where they're coming from. I have plenty of <laughs> friends in my life where it's like, yeah, no, I can see where s- something happens and you're not entirely sure what it is. Just it occurs and then you don't talk to this person ever again, even though you acknowledge that you were close with them at some point in their life. And right. you feel very lonely because of it and you don't have much to lean on. And, and you feel guilt for it. Yeah. I, I understand that. Yeah there, are, yeah. there were there were definitely times where I could have stood up for someone that was in a bad spot. Yeah. And I just sort of let it go and as a result, cut them off because it sort of it it uh, it protects me from the pain Mm -hmm. of having to feel that guilt. You know what I mean? Uh, And that's what happens here. Like Sean Penn and Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah. They they almost lash out at the victim because they don't want to have to feel that guilt. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that like human beings can do. I understand that for sure. Yeah. I And yeah, I, I just thought that that was, I don't know, deeply affecting. It's not that I was necessarily feeling bad for them, for their relationship specifically. It's more so their circumstances and the fact that, you know, stuff that was out of their control led them to this point where they are turning on each other. And I just thought that the fact that life could be so unforgiving and unpredictable in that way towards people who really shouldn't have been in a position where they were forced to do the horrible things that they're doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought that was, uh, I don't know, pretty impactful for me personally. I, so th- I guess that's what it comes down to, whether or not you feel sorry for them uh, in in the grander scheme of things, not so much their relationship specifically. We should be more specific here about what the plot is. Yeah. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, <laughs> yeah, talking about, in circles. Yeah, we, we are talking in uh, vast generalities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and Kevin Bacon were children, uh, growing up in Boston, Tim Robbins was abducted by. I, I think it's implied that it's a priest, mm-hmm. right? It's a priest posing as a cop, mm-hmm. uh, held for four days and sexually abused for those days um they finally tim robbins is freed and has to live with this trauma for the rest of his life uh sean penn and kevin bacon are not really supportive throughout that entire process and as you said that sort of became uh the catalyst for the degradation of the relationship um so they're now adults and sean penn's daughter gets murdered Mm -hmm. and um and tim robbins is suspected as a uh, as a potential uh, murderer, so uh, and it's about how these friends sort of turn on each other and go behind the law and uh, uh, to to try to uh, get to the truth and uh, carrying out justice uh, again uh, above the law. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the story. I I certainly see what Dennis Lehane was going for here in the novel, and I certainly see what Clint is going for here as well, but. I, again, this is a movie about character. Yeah. This, is, this is more so than I think any other movie on this list. This is a movie about characters and human nature, and you just can't keep us at a distance. You know, we we have to buy these relationships. We have to sympathize with them before this act of betrayal, or else that ending feels flat. And I just again saw that ending, and I'm like, okay, this is just an, an interesting story. This is not really a <laughs> fully realized film you know really yeah, yeah see i don't know i disagree with that i always because I, I did buy the relationships i just bought them in a different light i suppose i didn't buy again more I, cynically you think yeah okay yeah that's that's the important thing it's like i didn't buy them as like close friends I, and i thought the movie was deliberately making it so that they weren't close friends that they were at one point it's just after so many years and holding on to this pain for as long as they did they just kind of you know let it you know destroy themselves without even fully realizing it yeah so i bought them that's how i was reading it the entire time and at least it, it worked very very well for me 
Um, so when, like I said, when everything did happen and they, like I said, they felt forced to do what they had to do. It's like, Oh, I just felt so sorry for these people. Yeah. So the, yeah, the betrayal is, is more interesting for me for, for, I guess, different reasons besides their friendship. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's their circumstances that makes it so sad and, and tragic. Yes. And I, I don't yeah, know. I think I, I more pity these people than I feel bad for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like how, like you didn't have to get to this point. That's, that's the thing that, again, that's why I, I hang on it so much. I'm just like, oh, like I just I really like that approach. They they're doing something that because we as the audience know that Tim Robbins didn't do this thing. Yeah. You just know like, oh fuck. Like if they had at least just like stayed closer, if they, they had trusted each other a little bit more, if they had been there for one another at the start of it all, mm-hmm. you know that this wouldn't have happened at all. Right. You know? And also that crime, as much as it affected Tim Robbins and he's the primary victim, it also set the other two kids on a trajectory. Yeah. Right. And and they all sort of became the victim of this crime. Yeah. And it's sort of this idea that, uh, you know, when you don't look out for one another, when you allow crime to happen, when you allow wrongdoing to happen, everyone suffers. Society is the victim. Right. Yeah. It's like the best film about like karma, if, I, if you want to call it that in a way that I've seen. Kind of like I said, like in kind of in terms of like 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 being affected by a past event and not addressing it the way that you probably should have. Yeah. Because it's very obvious that every every one of these kids have been heavily victimized because of it. It's not just Tim Robbins, like you said. Right. Um, Do you think it's a bad movie, though, you personally? I think it's well made. <laughs> I, I respect it. I think Tim Robbins is actually incredible in it. I think he's really, really good. And I think Sean Penn is really good as well. Mm-hmm. Emily um, Rossum is in it. For yeah, movie. Emmy Rossum. Yeah. Uh, Marcia Gay Harden as well. Yeah, that's right. That's I think right. was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, I think. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think like, yeah, it's proficient. I, I don't think Clint makes a lot of bad movies. I think he mostly makes proficient movies. Um, but I, I just wish for more. And I guess, put it this way, it's definitely not my kind of movie. I guess that's true. You know what I mean? I mean, it is bleak. And, yes. And like you said, cynical as hell. And even that ending where it's where it basically seals it shut like, yeah, no. You're going to no, send her $500 too? <laughs> there's really... <laughs> The, the lack of like like hope of going back for these kids it's like yes it's like there's there's really no going back we've set in our ways and we've accepted it i'm coming for you and you're just gonna have to deal with it and he's like okay right that's a <laughs> sad thing to contend with but it's not totally inaccurate to life i i also think there, th- this movie covers a lot of things about grieving and loss like one of my favorite scenes is when uh uh sean penn's daughter dies and he's in the house and they're all kind of mourning for, for her. And this guy comes up to him and he's like, yeah, I felt really bad when my wife died, but you have domestic responsibilities. And Sean Penn's like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Th- but okay. This is kind of what I mean yeah. though. It's like, who in this universe has a heart? Is there anyone in this movie that cares about another human being? I would uh, other than the daughter's boyfriend, I yeah. guess. Is there anyone else that legitimately has care and affection for another person? Like I can't stand movies like that. I can't say movies with such a cynical worldview. There is literally no one here that cares about another person. I don't say that that's true. I mean, Sean Penn certainly cares about his daughter. <laughs> I you could say that. In a vengeful way, I suppose. No, he cares about his No, I, yeah, I understand. Yes, but in the uh, the most bleak revenge movie way possible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I'm a gangster, and now I'm going to shoot up the world because my daughter was murdered. I don't think it's that the movie is lacking heart specifically. It's also just a bad neighborhood of people. Maybe. You know, where in the, again, the, like I said, that scene with Sean Penn and Tim Robbins, and he's crying. It's just a, just a wonderfully touching scene, and it's so sad. But, um... I, again, like, I, I don't know. 
I just kind of like understood it. I don't know. Like you said, like, like my, like your wife was, uh, died peacefully in her sleep and my daughter was murdered and now she's on a slab being cut open and you're talking to me about domestic fucking responsibilities. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just the notion where, cause one of the reasons I connect to that so much is that like, if you've ever had people you, you cared about die or known people who have had people who have died, um, you don't really you're afraid to like reach out to them because you're you're worried that your sympathies are not going to mean anything to them and, right. and could even offend them. Yes. So I think about that a lot. And that's it's impossible coming up with something to say. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's why that scene in particular really spoke to me where it's like because I've been in situations where I've had like family die and I'm like, I don't want to hear from anybody. Right. And if you dare say anything or try to relate your experiences, that's to me, the worst. Right. Fuck you. Yes. yes. That's the worst. Like my dog died last week. I know how you feel. <laughs> Right. Yep. There's no, the only person you can, the only thing you can say to someone who lost a close family member is just, I'm sorry for your loss. Move on. That's it. Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. And it, like the most cliche answer is the best answer. Exactly. And the less cliche you are, the worse that it can get. Yep. Stick to the fucking script. No improvising. <laughs> if you go to a waker funeral, very true. no improvising. Mm-hmm. Sorry for your loss. I love you. Goodbye. Very, very true. You know, yeah, I, I, I love it. No ad living. I'd like, I'd like to note, by the way, first movie that Clint Eastwood scored. So that, that what do did, you mean? He did the music for this movie. How? What are you talking about? He, did the mu- he's, he, he scores his movies, dude. Clint Eastwood scores his movies. Yeah. You didn't know that. I did not. He scores like he scored. Well, a- I know he wrote the song at the end of Grand Torino. No, because <laughs> I love that song that <laughs> plays during the credits. Really? Grand Torino. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he scores all of his films ever ever since Mystic River. He's done the score, and I actually think this is probably his best score because it's the, the most uh, dynamic in a way, you know, and it works really well. And I honestly, I think I've seen Mystic River more than any other film on this list. Wow, that's nuts. Yeah, man, Clint's the fucking best, yeah. dude. Dude, anybody that hates on Clint can kiss my ass. Oh, it's a terrible crime against humanity. <laughs> dude scores his own movies too. <laughs> yep. He's fucking ninety. Yep. Oh my god, I can't wait to push you out of a wheelchair if you're 90 and you hate Clint Eastwood. <laughs> when you turn 90, I'm going to show up at your retirement community. Yeah, Nico. You're going to be that person, though. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. But you know what? I'll go to my grave loving Clint Eastwood. I'm happy for you. Let's talk million dollar baby. By the way, Nico. What? I can't have a conversation with you about movies anymore because you don't like this one. Let's move on. <laughs> That's a real inside joke for just me and you. <laughs> don't know why you would say that on the air (laughs) million dollar babies from 2004 stars clint eastwood hillary swank and morgan freeman winner of best picture actress supporting actor and director hillary swank and morgan freeman take home those two uh it's morgan freeman's first and only oscar it's clint eastwood's second yep got two best directors two best pictures Unforgiven, a million dollar baby. Uh, he was also nominated for Best Lead Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Cleaned up at the Academy Awards. A determined woman works with a hardened boxing trainer to become a professional. At age 74, Clint Eastwood became the oldest Best Director Oscar winner of all time. Cool. 74 years old. I didn't realize he was that old. Yeah, yeah very old man. I guess it makes sense, yeah. Um... I personally think this is his second best movie. Okay. That's that's what I would say. What do you say? I mean, I really really like the movie. Don't get, it's like it's it's a great film, but um yeah, I I don't know. Maybe for similar reasons. I I this film is is oh boy. I mean, you don't have to 
your film doesn't have to be rewatchable. Don't get me wrong. Right. It's not an enjoyable watch. The film is really upsetting. It's a- I rewatched it last night because it's on HBO Max. So I figured, okay. I, I, I don't like movies about losers uh-huh. that, that lingers on how much of losers they are. And even because you go to movies for escapism, exactly. You try to get away from your life. You don't want to be reminded. I don't. Of it. I don't want to be reminded of who I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's it. The movie is nitty gritty with like why these people aren't successes and <laughs> the things that are keeping them back and the, like just how their lives are just kind of wasted away. And even sometimes, right when you think they're gonna get like a leg up on everybody, they just get you know, a, uh, what's what's the phrase? A stool to the neck, punched. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a it's a horrible joke <laughs> i had a really bad joke the other day that i can't say on yeah there. good let's yeah, let's cannot say yeah let's again. not do that uh maybe afterwards okay um, it's uh but it's a great film it's a really really good film and i think a lot of it is just because i think it's clint eastwood's best performance as well agreed agreed yeah i yeah. mean he's remarkable in this movie. he's so fucking good in this yeah it's just great to see him be this vulnerable yeah in this just i, I don't think he's ever been so flawed yeah even in gran torino i think he's more flawed here yeah you know you just you just wonder like what the hell happened to you man yeah i mean his choices and words are more flawed in gran torino i yeah. guess but so what <laughs> yeah i think who he is as a person yeah. uh this is I think as you're right, as intimate and human as the man's ever been. It is, I think, one of the examples um, and why I think it's one of his best. It's it's an example of a movie where the hands-off approach is the best approach. Yeah. Um, th- he has the perfect amount of distance between him and his characters. Mm-hmm. Does not get in the way. Does not distract you. Does not insist upon himself. Uh, he just lets the story do the talking. And this is just a remarkable story. It's a really, really good script written by Paul Haggis, who, uh, you know, we've criticized in the past just because Crash is a fucking abomination of a movie. Um, <laughs> I'm, gr- I'm glad that we could we could agree on that, by the way. If yes. you if you thought <laughs> if you thought Crash was good, dude, yeah, I might have to distance myself. From and, this and, podcast. and Crash wins the Oscar the following uh, year, too. How Crash, crazy is that? Crash is like one of my least favorite films. I, I actually hate Crash. Can you imagine there was a time where Paul Haggis was considered like, you know, one of the most important filmmakers on the planet? Oh, my God. That movie sucks. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. That movie is fucking terrible. I remember seeing that in uh, I think it was freshman year of high school and just telling people around me, guys, this movie is not good. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, who knows? Maybe it'll be OK. And luckily about, I don't know, 40 percent of them agreed with me. Right. <laughs> And okay, here's the difference between this and Mystic River. Um, it's a downer. Mm-hmm. It's bleak. It's more of a downer than Mystic River. I think so. Yeah, I think it's the biggest downer of his career. Yeah, certainly. It's a little cynical at the end. Maybe very cynical, depending on how you read it. Yeah. But it's got tons of heart, and that's the difference. Yeah, this movie is drenched with heart. There are different kinds of hearts. I wouldn't say that Mystic River doesn't have a heart. Uh, it's it doesn't have this – it's not as cold. Uh, this is not as cold as Mystic River can be. Like you said, not nearly as cynical because there is hope in this film. Yeah. It, it like, like Mystic River is, again, like Clint as if he's like mad. Mm-hmm. He made the film like he was pissed off at something in his life. But this is like 
him almost coming up from that. He's still kind of in, I don't know. I don't know if this is even true biographically or anything, but this feels like he was in a rut and he's coming up and it's not perfectly great, but you know, you do have Jay Baruchel's, is that how you say his name? Baruchel? Baruchel, yeah. Yeah. His character is saying, you know what? Everyone's got one loss. Yeah. I'm going to come back. Right. Even if it doesn't necessarily mean much, at least you have spirit again. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There. Should we spoil the movie? Do people know the ending of Million Dollar Baby? I feel like people know it, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, if you don't, just fast forward to the end. The, the timestamps are in the description or whatever. But Come on. Yeah, everybody knows, right? Yeah, um, yeah I, I think the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know what the ending was. I, I think I saw it around the time it came out with my parents. I hate to say it, but I did know what happened. Yeah. Okay, so that changes things then, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah. I think I went into this thinking this is going to be Rocky, but with a woman instead of a man. And it's not that at all. It kind of similar to the Irishman. Like it gives you three pretty conventional acts or two very conventional acts. And then the third act is just totally. It's a different movie. Yeah. It's a completely different movie. The movie takes on a whole different meaning in the last half hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I remember seeing it and just being as like a, let's see, how old was I? Maybe I was 11 or 12 when I saw it. Just fucking devastated. Um, I think if I saw it now, I would, I think I would handle it a lot better than I did at age 12. Um, uh, but, you know, some people called cynical th- this idea that Hillary Swank gets paralyzed and death is a better option. Um, I know there were a lot of disability activists that sort of pushed back on the movie and this whole idea that it's better to die than to live paralyzed. Uh, where do you where do you fall on that? Uh, I don't, I, I, this is one of those instances where it's hard for me to relate it to real life. I mean, the, yeah, I mean the character of, uh, uh, Jesus, Maggie, Maggie. Fitzgerald. Yes. I mean, she's how great Hillary Swank in this movie, by the way, she's actually great. She's so good. And I'm very critical of Hillary Swank often. Yeah. Uh, but this is, uh, quite good. Yeah. I don't think she's ever been better. And you know, I mean, she won the Oscar, so there yes. you go. Uh, it's like this and then the hunt. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> She's actually quite good. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, her character is a little larger than life, though. It's hard for me to relate her to people who are actually suffering with what she ultimately suffers with. Yeah. And the whole point is that, like, you know, when someone has like a, a spirit and a life like hers to have her be like that, you know, it's it's just traumatizing. You know, it it, it sounds strange to say it makes me think of Muhammad Ali and right. I, you know, like, I don't know if this is controversial to say, but it's horrible seeing him at the end of his life. Yeah. It was always set. I remember I saw him at, uh, his, like a, his daughter was on dancing with the stars. Layla Ali was on dancing with the stars. Yeah. And here's Muhammad Ali who, after taking all those punches, can't even walk with his own strength anymore. I, I'm not saying that he should have killed himself. No, no, I think that's I, the, right. Right. I, I, but I, I'm, I'm saying again, I can't believe I'm relating it to this movie. If we're talking about it, like like the Joker. Oh, God. Where we talked endlessly about, we don't support these people. No, of course, obviously. <laughs> the point is to understand them. That doesn't mean you agree with them or yes. back them, but you understand them the way you understand a painting. Of course. You know. Yes. <laughs> it's the same way where it's like, oh, okay. Like, I understand, like, why you would want death after having such an incredible life or coming from such shit to becoming so alive. Right. I, I, I want to die before I can't hear the crowd chanting my name. Exactly. 
Yeah. Um, I don't agree with the philosophy, as you just said. No. Uh, I think I would rather be alive. Yes. Uh, no matter in what state. I definitely would not bite my own tongue to bleed out. Dude. Ugh. Dude. Oh, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen, by the way. They took my leg, Frankie. They took my leg. The bed sore is just... Oh, God! This movie is brutal! Yeah, I actually rewatched it. <laughs> oh, I know I did, too. Yeah, I, yeah, I had it on last night, and I'm like, like yeah. why did I do this to myself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the problem. I, I I think about like like family members too. This and I I ended up crying because I I didn't think of the movie specifically. I just thought of like what it would be like for other family to be in this position. It just really got to me. Right. Like, really upsetting movie. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah. I. I just think the spirit of what the movie's going for is true, even though it's not like literally true. No. Like as you said, the That's- sadness of us looking at Muhammad Ali unable to stand up on his own strength yeah. the greatest fighter greatest american athlete of all time can't move anymore it, it, it's it's more sad for us than it is for him right maybe yeah. and i think that's maybe what the movie misunderstands exactly it's it's but it's like a sin is the point it's like no human being who should should ever have to endure this let alone someone like him yes or, or someone like her but see I, I i do wonder though if we're kind of projecting though i don't know i don't know like i, I wonder if we're projecting on like oh I, I want that person to die as I remember them. Yeah, I know. Whereas it's just better for them to be in the world. Do you know what I mean? And it, it sort of, it poses the Clint's decision at the end to, to give her that shot of adrenaline. It, it sort of poses it as her choice and it poses it as mercy for her. Like, here you go. You, you, you no longer have to suffer anymore. Like, I'm putting down my dog. And I think like that's maybe the wrong way to frame it. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, if it, it sh- maybe should be her choice, right? Doesn't that make more sense? I mean, it well, is her choice, but I think the question is: w- is that the choice that she truly would have wanted? I don't know. I don't. It's who? Who the hell is to say? It's a. It's a movie. It's ab- such a. Re- yeah, you're right. It's such like a foreign yeah. circumstance. I can't say I've ever been in her position. Right. <laughs> it's. It's. <laughs> I mean, it's a movie about the the vitality of the human spirit. And sort of preserving that. But it's also a movie about defining and making your own legacy mm-hmm. and your own destiny. So it works squarely into those themes, I suppose. Right. How you define yourself is very important. And even in something like death, does that matter? You know, or, yeah. or is it important or is it not important or is it not important? Who knows? And how does that affect you and those around you? You know, her family certainly doesn't give a shit. Oh my God. <laughs> they went to fucking Disney World. Great touch, the Disney World T-shirts, oh my, God. impeccable! One of the most realistic details. Yeah, <laughs> we're just like because I I've seen so many people just like you. Yes, <laughs> pieces of shit. It's like oh, you stop for a coffee on the way. Oh, it's terrible. it's like, it's, it's, it's so a weird terrible. comparison, but it's it's like that great line from Uncut Gems <laughs> where <laughs> where Sandler's girlfriend shows up and she brought a smoothie on the way. It's like you were in such a hurry to get here, you stop for a smoothie. <laughs> that's that's a Larry David comment, right? There. Yeah, <laughs> but this is like the darkest possible version of that. I know. You know what I mean? It's like oh, you flew in six days ago and you spent all this time at Universal Studios. You're, you're a bad person for making a pit stop. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, it, the movie's just full of great stuff like this. Morgan Freeman is awesome in this movie. <laughs> Here's the thing, man. If you have Morgan Freeman narrating your movie, it can't be that bad. Unless no. it's called March of the Fucking Penguins. Like, there's already, like, a there's a basement here that is incredibly high. I like March. I actually don't care for March. It's it's whatever. March of the Penguins, whatever. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's what it is. <laughs> um, but, dude, the scene where he just punches Anthony Mackie in the ring. 
Oh, that's great. Fight 110. 110. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> awesome shit. That's just movie magic here, man. Like, that's just crowd-pleasing, just sports movie deliciousness. Oh, man. That shot of, though, of Jay Bruchel walking away, like, 100 feet away. Oh, yeah, that's a great just, shot. Uh, this movie's traumatizing. Yeah. <laughs> it really is just deeply upsetting. But yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's hard to deny the, the, the craft and the proficiency of the storytelling. Something I noticed on rewatch is how confined it feels. Yeah. Like it takes place like almost exclusively in interiors mm-hmm. and it just feels just like pounding and inescapable in a weird way. This world is so clearly defined because of that. And it's just nasty. One uh, of the things I love about it actually is how small those arenas are that mm, she's boxing yeah. in, you know? Yeah. Because they could have gone much bigger. Right. They, they don't really do that at all. Kind of reminds me of the wrestler in that way. Yeah. <laughs> the rip, but the wrestler is just like trash. Yeah. It's even more pathetic. Right. Yeah. But no, like even, even when they get to like her big title moment, even that scene is sort of underplayed and it's, it's not like Rocky at all, you know? Well, that's one of the things. It's one of my major complaints with something like Creed, which is a movie I really like. Um, but when they're in the last act and it's the big fight and HBO is covering the event and there's all these crowds like, <laughs> It's really hard to pull off scope and spectacle in a in a um, in a context like that. Uh, concerts are a really hard thing to portray for a similar reason, and I think like a Star Is Born gets this really well. Like they shoot it very as intimately as you can in front of twenty thousand people. Yeah. Uh, Creed doesn't do that. Creed, it feels like oh, I'm just watching a boxing match on HBO, and it takes me out of the spell of the movie. Almost mm. this movie never does that. This it never feels stagey. No, those fight sequences always feel like they exist in a world that you could be a part of. You know, I agree. And but it's just uh, again, I also thought that they were comically. Uh, done to not not in a, to to its detriment, but that's just because of the the way uh, 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 um, Maggie goes about her fights, just knocking people out in one punch. Yeah, it's just very smart and clever and cinematic in that way. So right, they, they, I, and you would th- again relating back to what we were talking about with Clint being you know kind of so often good for his age, where it's like you wouldn't expect him to be able to have the energy to do like a boxing scene, but mm-hmm. he does it quite well. Yeah, no, the the movie is just. Again, it feels like a farewell. It feels like one last gasp. <laughs> but that's what Gran Torino feels like as right. well. Right. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> we get it. Just die all right. <laughs> <laughs> this man won't go. It's crazy. <laughs> Just die. Oh, man. If Elaine only Jersey Boys was his last movie, you know, that would have been the most appropriate way to go out. <laughs> Elaine, you don't like the movie? I hate the movie. <laughs> well, why don't you just say so? You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking English patient. <laughs> I think, honestly, a deserving Best Picture winner, yeah. Million Dollar Baby, one of the few times they got it right. I think, uh, I suspect that's not going to be the inductee today. Um, but when we talk about the year 2004, I think it's going to be a contender. I just think it's a both a, a crowd pleaser and a total downer. Um, yes. And it does both immaculately and... Uh, Everything Clint does well, as we've said. Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood turns out fucking rules. Yes, he does. (laughs) Turns out. (laughs) It's very well known that that man rules. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah. Again, another movie that uh, began shooting in July of 2004 and came out in December. Oh, boy. Just in time for Oscar season. Crazy. This man. Doesn't stop. Doesn't stop. Mm -mm. 
Good for him though. What a grinder, man. I, I, he's one of those figures where it's like when he passes, Oh, it's going to be upsetting. It's going to hurt. Yeah. I can't wait for the Clint marathon though that week. Oh my Lord. I can't wait to just spend <laughs> every movie, every waking hour of my day watching Clint Eastwood movies that those Academy awards that year must that like in memoriam is just Clint Eastwood. Right. And then at the very end, all the other people who died. Yes. <laughs> just give me an hour at Clint Eastwood highlights. <laughs> Uh, it's unforgiven, right? Yeah, it's unforgiven. Okay, good. Yeah, it's not even close. Congratulations <laughs> to unforgiven. That's great. For its spot in the movie Hall of Fame. Good job, unforgiven. Now, now, what do we do? Glad that's settled. Well, Adam Hall, we've got a week of uh, actually a month of directors this June. We're covering filmographies of four very interesting and diverse men, I would say. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about a number of them. Uh, appropriately enough, next week, we're we're doing Spike Lee. Spike Lee is next week. He's got a new movie coming out on Netflix called The Five Bloods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think a fairly appropriate filmmaker to talk about in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, Do the Right Thing is an important movie to watch these days. I would watch that movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. Yeah. When you think about it. So, mm-hmm. come back next week as two white guys talk about the filmography of Spike Lee. We're experts, people. Yeah. We know what we're talking about. Uh, we actually have this all mapped out. Yes. So, I have the list. So I- I'll just let you know. Next week, Spike Lee, uh, we're doing Do the Right Thing, Inside Man, 25th Hour, She's Gotta Have It, and Clockers. Um, and then the following week, we're doing the film's of Miyazaki Mm -hmm. studio Ghibli. The entire catalog is available on HBO max. So if you want to catch up, uh, we're going to do Miyazaki movies. And then the following week, June 25th, it's bong bong bong. I'm excited for that one. Bong Jun ho is going to round out the month, the winner of our uh, discord poll. Yeah. By the way, if you want to have a say in this podcast, if you want to give some feedback, or perhaps you want to control the direction of the show by voting, mm. join our Discord. We post polls there all the time. You can make fun of Adam Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or you. He'll take it like a champ. Yeah. I'm, I'm a punching bag. I'll, I'll do it. I don't care. Make fun of his cardigan. Tell me anything you want. I'll, his uh, sweaty pits. Uh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's okay. <laughs> Go to the website, too many thoughtsmedia.com or tmt.media. Click on the Discord link in the sidebar and join. It's been a really fun community to engage with. Um, and you're missing out if you're not there. It's where all the cool kids hang out. That's, right. That's the clubhouse right there. <laughs> I'm barely on it. I should really engage a little bit more, but at least I have it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have to engage with the internet more these days. I think that's really the advice. I think I should post my thoughts and feelings on the riots on Facebook. No, I wouldn't do that. You don't think so? No. Okay. I wouldn't. Uh, okay, that's that. <laughs> We're good. Be safe out there, everybody. Give it a try. <laughs> Give each other a hug every once in a while. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. Treat each other like they do in Mystic River. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're looking for <laughs> examples of humanity, yeah, Mystic River, not the way to go. <laughs> Just watch do the right thing. Uh, I love you, especially now more than ever. And, uh, and folks, until next time. I've killed everything that walks or crawls at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill. Bill.